Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. It's Monday, September 23rd, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. As our listeners know, we said goodbye to our longtime co-host Kishore Hari last week. So we're going to be playing around with a few different formats. And one thing that I thought would be interesting is to take an in-depth look on a particular topic spanning across multiple episodes. We've done this in the past and our listeners have liked it. So hopefully you'll like it this time too. For the next two episodes, we're going to talk about the world's smallest things. Well, not quite so small. We do have Sean Carroll coming up in a later uh, episode talking about quantum world, but small enough where it either bothers us in the case of little insects or that we don't even see and yet can have a profound effect on our behavior like parasites. So this week, I interviewed Anne Sverdrup Thygesen. She's a professor at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences outside Oslo and a scientific advisor to the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. She recently wrote a book called Buzz, Sting, Bite, Why We Need Insects. And in this interview, I have to say I learned a lot, including that I didn't even know what an insect actually was. Anne Sverdrup Thygesen, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So I want to start out with some definitions, because it was about a third of the way through your book that I realized that I really don't know what insects are, because I would have thought a spider was an insect. <laughs> that's, that's a very classic misunderstanding. So I think you're in good, good company there. But actually, it is sort of very simple. I mean, if you can count to six, uh, then you can really separate insects from other things, because if you can keep counting after you've come to six, then it is definitely not an insect. Because insects do have six legs. Uh, and that's sort of a very basic thing to, to look for. So yeah, so tell us a little bit about how that classification came about. I mean, it seems to me that a spider that has eight legs is quite similar to, you know, an insect like an ant compared with other parts of the animal world. So what is it that really distinguishes six-legged creatures from other types of creatures that we might categorize without knowing the science as insects? It's almost like, you know, a children's rhyme. I usually tell this if I if I talk to people, if I'm out giving talks, um, because it's it's like um, six, four, three, two, one. Um, and the six is for the legs. So like I was saying, all the insects have six legs. And then they have 
four wings. So there's nothing on five, unfortunately, uh, which would have been nice uh, for the logic of this, but uh, we have to skip the five. But on four, um, you have the number of wings. So most insects have wings and most of them have four wings. Uh, spiders, as you are, I'm sure you're aware of, I mean, they don't have wings. They never ever have wings. There are some insects, of course, they're always you know, um, exceptions. So not all insects do have wings, but usually they do. And except from mosquitoes and flies, they have four wings. Uh, mosquitoes and flies have only two. And then for the three, insects are divided into three body parts that are separated. And this is really a, a remaining from way back when these type of animals developed from, you know, basic arthropods. So um, together with spiders, spiders are also arthropods, and they, they used to be uh, many joints uh, in a body uh, like that. And then for insects, they have merged, and now they have three body parts. So the, the joints within that um, part of the body has really merged to become one. While, again, spiders only have two. So that was the three. And then on the front uh, foremost body part of the insects, the head, you have two antenna, antennas, uh, and uh, spiders don't have those either. So, and the the last one is really maybe not so relevant in in English because in the word insect is written almost the same in Norwegian, but many people misspell it and spell it with a double N. So the one is really for the fact that insects is spelled with one M. That's great. Uh, so, what is it about this particular or these particular traits? Uh, that I mean, and well, I mean, I guess I'm jumping ahead here because um, maybe most of our listeners don't know yet, but insects seem to be a very successful <laughs> category of animals. So tell us a little bit about their success, uh, you know, in terms of their numbers and numbers of uh, us, for example. Yeah, I mean, they are just incredibly numerous. Um if you count the number of insects uh, and you divide them out for each of us humans living on this planet, there is still 200 million insect individuals for each of us humans. And that sort of gives you an idea of how numerous they are. That's like the entire voting population of the US. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's for each of us. So, and, and then again, um, they come in so many different uh, versions or or really species then. So um, if you look at the plants and animals uh, that we do know today, the species we do know, 75% of all known animal and plant species are actually insects. So that means they dominate completely in the world of, of species that we know. Um, still, we don't really pay attention to them, um, which I definitely think we, we should because being so many and coming in so many different varieties they have something to do with almost every process that goes on out in nature. And they are sort of linked up to human lives in so many different ways that people are not aware of. Um, and they're also doing all these fun things out there, which is something that fascinates me. Um, they are both, you know, fun and, and fabulous, but they're also really, really important. They actually sort of save your life a little every single day. So, yeah, so tell us about some of those ways. If you want to sort of group it, I guess everybody knows about pollination. That's the one thing that people know that insects do. Um, you know, they fly from one flower to another. 
bringing uh, pollen along, um, helping the plants set their seeds, which is, of course, incredibly important. We know that um, 80, 90% of wildflowers depend on insect pollination. And also a huge proportion of our different crops depend on pollination. Although if we count in uh, calories, we get most of our calories from wind-pollinated crops, um, you know, cereals, uh, corn, rice, and some others. But still, insects are important for pollinating all sorts of fruits and berries and nuts, and also clover and alfalfa and stuff like that. So it would definitely be very boring um, to eat if it wasn't for the insects out there. And then something else that is maybe not, uh, I guess, literally as, as sexy as pollination, and it's much less talked about. Um, and this is the service that they do in what we usually call the brown food web, which is the decomposition um, food web. And, you know, if you look at all plants that produce biomass on this planet, um, 90% of that is not eaten by a herbivore. It just falls to the ground and it needs to be recycled for those nutrients that are, you know, locked up uh, in that dead plant uh, for in, in order for those nutrients to be reused. So the, the insects are really important together with fungi and bacteria as a sort of janitors out there in nature, recycling dead plants, dead trees, dead animals, and also the dung that animals produce while they are living, and make sure mm -hmm. that this is turned into fertile soil again. And this is really basic for life on Earth. And then I guess thirdly, you would uh, say that insects are, as they are so numerous, it's easy to understand that they are really, really important as food for those that depend on them um, to eat. Like a lot of our birds, uh, a lot of freshwater fish, quite few, a few mammals. And if you think of the fact that if you weigh the biomass or the, I mean, the, just the weight of all the insects that the birds on this planet eat each year, the weight of all those in, uh, insects actually equals the weight of all us humans living on the planet. And that's just the birds, what they eat. And then you can add all these others that eat um, insects as well. And it's easy to understand that it's important. And then finally, uh, insects help us with a lot of products, both those we know, like honey and silk, but also a lot of less known uh, products. Carmine Red, for instance, uh, Shellac, um, lots of products like that. And inspiration, ideas that we can copy, uh, potential for new antibiotics, being important as um, animals in the in the biomedical research, like the the fruit fly, which has actually been part of six Nobel prizes in medicine. So, I guess those are the four sort of main things that the insects help us with. So, one of the things though that um, makes insects less loved <laughs> is the fact that the mosquito is the deadliest animal to humans uh, on the planet, at least by some measures, and there is this kind of idea that we could just get rid of mosquitoes now through a gene drive or, you know, another protocol, and it wouldn't have that big an influence on the ecosystem. And so 
I think you probably disagree. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to hear uh, your argument for why we shouldn't eradicate uh, mosquitoes that you know cause so much pain and suffering to humans. I think this is a, a you know complex and, and large question, and there are actually several questions uh, in one. Because one thing is um, whether we actually know enough to know what we're doing. If we try to do this, uh, are we sure that there will it, it will not backfire? That you won't see new negative effects. What will come instead? Uh, could there be other, even worse effects? I mean, we have been wrong before. Uh, the guy that invented DDT was given a Nobel Prize as well, uh, and we thought that was the you know the a wonderful new chemical that would help us uh, in all sorts of ways, and we didn't think it was anything wrong with it. But we quickly learned that it had some really negative effects. I mean, we could stop using DDT; we still see it, um, the effects of of, um, of this chemical um, in some ways in nature, but. Once you let loose something that you have manipulated using uh, gene drivers um, and this CRISPR-Cas9 technology, it's really hard, if not to say impossible, to sort of call it back or to stop using it. It's out there and it's let loose. And I think it's hard to be sure enough that uh, we know what we're doing. That's one thing. And then, of course, it's sort of... um, is an ecological side of it. Does it matter if we eradicate uh, a species? I think it differs whether you talk about eradicating a certain species of mosquito um, in regions where it is not native. That's definitely more sort of something that's more acceptable than um, eradicating it in its natural environment. Um, And we don't really... I mean, there are so many species of mosquitoes, so probably if we were able to just pick out one, uh, eradicate that species, it's hard to say if it would have any huge ecological effects because other species with other mosquito types uh, and other insects would probably sort of step up. But this we don't really know all the details about. And then, of course, I guess finally it's uh, this sort of big moral issue if we can or question if should we really think about the planet and nature and the other species that we share the planet with in this way that we can eradicate those that um, harm us? I mean, is this sort of um, anthropocentric view? Uh, of course, malaria is an awful um, disease. It kills lots of, of people every year, especially young people. And that is really awful. But I also think it's worth considering that we have reduced the, the prevalence of malaria a lot just in the past 10, 15 years by using really, really simple measures like giving out mosquito nets. And that's definitely something you don't get Nobel Prizes or a lot of funding for. But I think, I think sometimes it's so easy to go off on these fancy new uh, methods that you get a lot of um, research support for and you get a lot of praise, you know, in the scientific community for breakthroughs in this type of research. While we maybe forget that poverty is what is causing some of uh, a disease like like this. Um, this, I mean, a lot of the, the mosquitoes that are uh, carry disease can have their larvae in really small um, 
water bodies. So if you clean up the slum, if people have decent places to live, that would actually help a lot. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's it's really important to sort of uh, go in the direction in which you're going, uh, which uh, you know, at least that in terms of where I want this conversation to go, which is this this um, disproportionate effect that a lot of the things that we do uh, have on poor people and on people who live in areas where they are being affected by things like climate change. Um, so I, I want to turn a little bit to sort of what are some of the ways in which humans are affecting insect populations um, and, and sort of what are the what are maybe the consequences of some of those actions? The main thing uh, affecting the insects uh, right now in a negative way is the way we use um, the land around us. The intensive land use is the number one challenge um, because we have change a huge proportion of the surface of the earth from natural vegetation with lots of habitats for insects and, and other species for that sake into something, I guess you could call it human landscapes. I mean, agricultural landscapes, for instance, uh, huge monocultures with one type of crop um, with, of course, very few habitats for these, um, for this multitude of species. And the same goes uh, in forests where there were, would be in a natural forest, there would be lots of dead trees, which, although it sounds strange, is actually the most living thing you can find in the forest. Because as the tree dies and this, these janitors move in to do the decomposition work, there are so many species involved, so many living cells in a dead tree. And it's actually in, in uh, Northern Europe, at least where I know these numbers, Almost one third of the species that lives in a forest, they live in dead wood. And of course, then in a modern um, industrial type forest um, where we are sort of growing trees for quick harvests, um, this will be very different. So, so land use, intensive land use uh, and changing the surface of this planet um, for the sake of agriculture and grazing is the main um, culprit here. And then, of course, climate change, uh, pesticide use and pollution and introduced species are just adding on, making it even harder to be an insect. Support for today's show comes from Mova Globes. Mova Globes turn all on their own, with or without a base, in any setting with ambient lighting. No batteries are needed and no sloppy cords to detract from your enjoyment. Instead, hidden magnets provide the movement. With over 40 different designs, including world maps, outer space, and famous artworks, there's something for everyone. The Outer Space Collection even features graphics provided by NASA and JPL, complete with planets, moons, asteroids, and constellation designs. It's a great gift for the person who has everything. So great, in fact, that recently my husband bought me one. <laughs> We recently redesigned my office and podcast studio, and I have to say the Mova Globe is a centerpiece now. It's a conversation starter whenever I have a guest coming in, and it's just really fun to look at. So in those moments when I'm trying to think of something to say and my mind drifts a little bit, I often spend my time fascinated by watching my Mova Globe. So visit movaglobes.com slash minds and use the code minds for 10% off your purchase. That's M-O-V-A globes.com slash minds and use the code minds for 10% off your purchase. 
So if there are 200 million of them for each one of us, though, um, how big a problem is it if we eradicate, you know, a, a lot of them, say, even through our, our, our land use? What are some of the consequences that we might not be thinking about uh, for either our ecology or even ourselves? It depends, of course, on the on the magnitude of uh, of it all. But like we are starting to see these effects. Uh, there's a study that came out last year from Puerto Rico in the Caribbean, uh, showing that in the 40 year time span between two study points, um, the number of insects measured really not as numbers but as as uh, as weight as biomass again. Uh, had fallen from between 75% to 98%. And they had also there measured um, insectivorous birds when they were there the first time. And then when they came back later, they did the same thing. Uh, And actually, they didn't even, I mean, even before they got the numbers out of their computers, they realized that something had really changed when they came back to this study site. It was so much quieter than it was when they were there the first time. And they could really see visually that there were less things flying around. And it turned out that also birds, the insectivorous birds, the insect-eating birds, had dropped. Not as drastically as the insects themselves, but substantially. While the the fruit-eating birds or the seed-eating birds had not shown uh, a similar decrease. And then, of course, if if we are... So this is the sort of um, ripple effect that we expect to see if insect populations are really going down a lot, it will affect the birds. It will affect freshwater fish. It will affect certain mammals. And, and this will sort of spread out um, as ripples in the water. And it's really hard to tell exactly how that will play out, but it will most certainly have large consequences if this is sort of going on on a, on a global scale for, for a long time. Um, and then, like with climate change, you have the issue of things getting out of sync. So um, this sort of mismatch in time, if you can, for instance, think of flowers that are dependent on insect pollination and the insects are dependent on the flowers to get pollen and nectar to, to sustain themselves. And then with climate change, we are changing the temperature. But if you for instance, consider that some things are triggered. Let's say that the plants, when they flower, is triggered by day length, the number of, of you know sunny hours or light hours with light in the in the day and the night. That we don't change. While we do change the temperatures, and then what we sort of see already this trend that is happening that things are decoupled in time. So flowers may be blooming at a point of time where the insects are not out yet, they're not swarming yet, or the other way around, that the insects swarm too early uh, and then the flowers are not there. So the insect won't get their food and the flowers won't get pollinated. And it's a parallel situation with, with birds that eat, need insects for feed to their chicks. If these things are decoupled in time, with because they are, we are, the climate change is changing these sort of very intricate connections in in the web of nature then of course the the birds will have problem raising their chicks because the insects won't be swarming so that they won't get this source of protein at the right time so there are all these sort of bigger things that might happen also with pollination of course if if um, our food crops are not pollinated as they are today 
it will make things like coffee or chocolate or strawberries or apples or almonds uh, a lot more expensive for sure. Uh, maybe really hard to to you know find in the store. So it will sort of play out on in ways we don't really know, but it's quite certain that if this really goes on on a larger scale, it will have consequences that we will feel. You know, one of the thing, descriptions in your book that you talk about is is sort of how throughout evolution, plants and insects, of course, continue to adapt to each other. Um, I'm assuming in this case, it's just, the climate change is just too quick. Uh, to allow for those kinds of adaptations. But I'm wondering if that's wrong, given the short lifespan of insects, given, you know, that they, you know, they're, they can go multiple generations and in a year, um, some of them. And so is it is it possible that they will in some ways be better suited to adapt to climate change than we would be? Uh, yes, in some ways, um, I think you're right on that. But the thing is that we're changing so many things so quickly um, it's really a question of whether they will be able to, to keep up because if they're already sort of stressed because of lack of habitat, if you add climate change then on top of it, it might be too much. And if, I mean, in order for evolution to go on, of course, evolution does go on all the time. And, and I mean, nature is dynamic and species are adapting, but there is a limit as to how fast species are able to adapt. Um, but as as I do quote in my book, there are some, you know, interesting examples of insects having been able to adapt really quickly. Like in the tube in London, you have a specific species of um, of mosquito, which is probably descendants of a female uh, mosquito, which was trapped down there when they built the tube like a hundred years ago, and she sort of started up a new. Uh, <laughs> type of or a new what ended up now as a new species of mosquito because it's no longer uh, able to to mate with the above ground mosquito of the same old species so and it's the same with this this uh, fly that used to live on hawthorn in in the u.s which has adapted to apples after the europeans brought with them apples to the u.s or to america um and now these two varieties are at the sort of the point of splitting into two different species. They are triggered by different, one is triggered by hawthorn, um, uh, you know, the smells from a hawthorn, the other from apple, and they're really separating. So, yes, insects can develop but and can uh, adjust and evolve. But the question is... So many things now, so much pressure um, at the same time. Uh, we are seeing that, like with bumblebees, both in Europe and in North America, the dis distribution range is sh shrinking in the south because it's getting too hot for them. Uh, but it's not really extending on the northern front still. So it's just the netto effect is that it's shrinking. So... Well, some species will be able to adapt. Uh, common species, uh, that's what we're sort of seeing already. Some common species will probably be even more common. And the losers will be all the, the rare species, those that are adapted to specific uh, areas, specific, specific localities, specific climates, specific conditions. And those are the majority of the species in the world. Uh, most species are... Uh, it's sounds strange, but it's actually common to be rare 
and rare to become them. I mean, you know, that it makes sense given just the the, the number and diversity of species, uh, you know, it, it, that that are available. That that of course that that it, the majority of species are in, in as you describe them rare. And I just want to talk a little bit about one or two insect species that do, we do predict will become more prevalent with climate change and that might pose a threat uh, to humans. So one that I've been reading about this summer is the tick, for example, um, that can carry diseases. And it does seem that in certain places, at least in the US and also in the UK and and probably other parts of Europe, um, the tick is becoming more common. Uh, Is that accurate? Uh, Well, firstly, we have to say that the tick is not an insect. Because if you count the number of legs, <laughs> you will see that the tick uh, the tick belongs to the mites. And the mites is a group of arachnids. So it's a sister group of the spiders. Some nymphs do have six legs, just to confuse you. But they are mites, so they are not a part of the insect group. So usually I get off the hook with defending the, the mites or the, the ticks. But... Um, there are several theories about why ticks are becoming more common. Um, there can be many sort of factors playing into that. One, of course, being climate. One being the changes that we have done in the animals that serve as hosts for the ticks. That could be one one thing. I mean, at least I don't know the details of the tick situation in the U.S., but in Norway, we definitely have much, much larger uh, populations of deer and moose than sort of what we think is the natural population uh, because we don't have a lot of the large uh, carnivores, the large predators. I mean, we do have a few wolves and a few bears, but very, very few compared to what would it would be if we wouldn't hunt them. And uh, and the population of Moose and and deer is many times higher than what it used to be, and of course, they also serve as uh, can be uh, vectors for this um, for the ticks and can keep uh, sort of building up a larger population. So I want to take a moment and just uh, tell our listeners how many wonderful descriptions and interesting uh, sort of anecdotes and, and bits of information your book is filled with. I mean, it's it's really a treasure trove of fascinating information. Uh, and it, it's called Buzz, Sting, Bite, Why We Need Insects. And it's available now at booksellers everywhere. And I should say that is the uh, American title, of course. Uh, you can get it in many different languages. And I want to sort of uh, end with a couple of uh, examples of really fascinating insects that I had never heard about. Um, and to get to one of the most fascinating ones that made me laugh out loud, I want you to tell us a little bit about um, eyes and how insects see and then what are some of the adaptations that, that uh, have been made that are hilarious. Um, yeah, the eyes. Of course, uh, insects have eyes that are dependent on um what they need them for, how they live. So, so some some um, have really good sight, uh, and then again, if you are living in a dark place, like in a cave underneath, uh, deep down, you don't have eyes at all. Um, but there are actually eyes in some strange uh, places in some insects, and I guess you are uh, talking about uh, these type of butterflies, where the uh, male actually have eyes or light-detecting devices on his penis. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm a 14-year-old girl trapped in a, <laughs> in a 
woman's body. <laughs> I mean, that is fascinating. Of course, it's sort of, I guess you could say it makes sense to, to make sure that you place your equipment in the right spot. But it is not very common. Uh, I don't think we know of any other cases, as far as I'm aware of, at least. Uh, this is one of the swallowtail butterflies that, that has this. So so that's definitely something. And then you have like dragonflies where, you know, the entire head is pretty much only ice. And they have incredibly good sight. Uh, dragonflies are among the best uh, hunters or the most successful hunters that we know of among the animals. Um, they're much more successful if you look at the rate than packs of lion or um, sharks. Uh, they actually get the prey. Once they start going for a prey, they get it in 95% of their trials, which is really high, much higher than the lions or the sharks. And this is uh, partly due to this immensely good sight. And they can see really um, things happening very quickly. You know, if we, uh, if we, you were to take a dragonfly with you to the movies, it would really be a waste because where we humans would see a continuous stream of pictures uh, turning into a movie, a video, uh, the dragonfly would still see separate pictures because they can they can discern and separate so many um, separate pictures per second, many many more than we can, and this is what makes them so good at you know aiming for that fly and getting it in midair. So you're just describing some of the ways in which um, insects have provided so much inspiration for engineers, uh, you know, for scientists, for people who study them, um, for fiction writers, uh, because they they just have such interesting adaptations and so much diversity. And, you know, it, it is really amazing how most of the time we just think of them as nuisances um, or we don't think about them at all, even though they make such a huge portion uh, of our world. So thank you for sharing uh, some of these amazing details. Uh, and Svedrup Thegason, thank you so much for coming on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So that's it for another episode. Join us next week as I interview Kelly Wienersmith and we talk about things that are even smaller than insects and possibly even more important. Well, I don't know. I guess Anne would take issue with that. But we'll talk about parasites and how parasites can actually alter animal behavior. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. We're also looking for someone to help us with our social media. So if that's you contact us at one of our contact points, probably the best way would be to email us at contact at inquiring.show. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your resume, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.